Everyone, quick reminder, nothing said on Empire is a recommendation to buy or sell securities or tokens. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and any views expressed by anyone on the show are solely our opinions, not financial advice. Santiago and I and our guests may hold positions in the companies, funds, or projects discussed. Now, let's get into the show. This episode is brought to you by Core the brand new non-custodial wallet that offers a seamless and secure experience on Avalanche. You'll hear more about Core later in the show. All right, everyone, before we jump into today's roundup with Santiago, quick announcement. Next week on Tuesday, you're going to see a, uh, a new podcast show up in your Empire feed. The show is called Bell Curve. It's hosted by myself and Mike, my co-founder of BlockWorks. It's two episodes a week. One episode is Mike and me exploring a new thesis every single season. Each season is going to have seven episodes, uh, and we're going to explore a big thesis. At the end of the season, we will revisit the thesis uh, to figure out if we were right, if we were wrong, uh, and, and, and just explore our curiosity there. Uh, the second episode of the week will be with Michael and Vance, the two founders of Framework Ventures. Really excited to have them on. We're going to focus the roundup on different governance proposals uh, and it should be really interesting. So when you see that come out, it'll come out in your Empire feed. It'll also come out in the Bell Curve feed. Uh, when you see it, go over to the Bell Curve feed, click subscribe if you want to get plugged into that show too. Now let's get back into Empire. Welcome back to another episode of Empire. We got the roundup. We got Santi back in action. Santi, my man, how are we feeling today? Feeling good. You know, we just recorded a fantastic episode with two of my favorite people in the space, Rebecca and Jake, uh, on a topic that is very front and center now, which is regulation. And I know a lot of times it's like people don't want to talk about regulation, but it is a topic that I think is super important and can be actually, I get the feeling that a lot of people don't want to talk about it because it's daunting. It's like stressful. But the more we talk about it and we get comfortable, I think there's a lot of interesting takes that people would appreciate in that episode that you know, regulation doesn't have to be like the Lord Voldemort of the space that you cannot topic that must not be named and talked about. <laughs> uh, so uh, I thought that was a great episode. And so coming really refreshed and optimistic about. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It was a phenomenal episode. Well, Asante, you, um, I mean, there's a lot of things to cover today. Uh, we've got uh, Faye and Rory. We could talk about that. We could talk about ETH merge uh, in like six weeks coming up. No one, uh, no, four weeks, three weeks, three weeks, I think. Coinbase staking, like uh, Coinbase ETH. Um, but I actually want to start with Ave retroactive funding. Oh, by the way, before we jump into that, your dad is killing the Twitter game. Your dad is hilarious <laughs> on Twitter. <laughs> Crushing the game. Yeah, well, yeah, that, I mean, like father, like son in some respects. I don't know. Who, who, we'll have to see who does more shit posting. I think I do more shit posting. He does more relevant posting. I didn't know. I didn't know you were a, a junior. I didn't know you were Santi Junior. The fourth or something, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right, man. Here's where I want to start. Is actually about um, Ave's retroactive funding. So Monet Supply posted something. Um, I'll just read what he said. He said, I think Aave V3 is a huge advance for the protocol and overall lending space, but would just like to point out that if, uh, for example, Uniswap Labs had made a proposal like this, crypto Twitter would have completely lost their shit, have not heard a single peep about Aave V3 retroactive funding. Uh, and then you you commented, my issue with Aave, my, you know what, you tell me what you commented and why, and, and, and your thoughts on this. So basically, just to set up general context, Aave company has been developing v3 which is a huge improvement to v2 and so the Aave companies um you know this, this is where most of the development is happening and so the context here is they developed v3 that included you know obviously employing a lot of engineers on the technical side and also doing security audits from folks like sertora trail bits i'm not sure trail bits but like you know and so all of that carries some costs right and so <clears throat> i think the the question here is Ave is now Ave companies putting a proposal for governance to be retroactively paid for all that development work, which span over over a year, and the cost is to the tune of sixteen million. And they provide some sort of breakdown. Um, and so, I think this idea of retroactive funding is pretty interesting. Um, the idea of having service providers and development companies contribute to a DAO is where Aave is transitioning to. Whereas you think of a centralized company, 
if you're Google, you have your Google is deploying like you know developing code, deploying it. That's it. In these DAOs, historically, of course, you had Ave, pure just Ave, which was the team, Stani and Co, building the lending market protocol, and then deploying the code. Now, of course, since they've launched and restructured a bit from Lend to Ave and transitioned to a DAO model, you have Ave the token, which is governance token, where voters can influence and vote on and comment on and propose certain things. And as part of that, there have been proposals by, hey, let's let's bring on a company like you know Gauntlet to do security simulation and analysis, and the, you know that's discussed and voted upon and approved. And so I think you're seeing these kind of, it's a transition that Aave is trying to do. You have Aave Company, which is Rastani and Co. And a lot of the engineers reside. They're developing a lot of the code, actually most of the code. And they also, and, and there's also grants. All of that's now being part of this like governance forum, if you will. Um, and so my point was, his point, when I supply is saying, well, like, you know, Uniswap, there's Uniswap Labs and there's a Uniswap Protocol. Um and so my take is, well, Avi's kind of like a, I would characterize as a DeFi 1.0 company. Like it, uh, it was initially called Land. It did an ICO back in 2017, right. 18. And then a lot of the tokens, it's just been restructured a lot, right? Um, from Land to Ave. And so, yeah, my, 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 my point there is it's an interesting precedent on a number of fronts. One, a developing studio like Ave company contributing to the DAO and how that is compensated and retroactive funding, which is a pretty novel idea. Um, and it sets the stage for other DAOs and how you see this evolution of, so you invest in a, in a startup that then tries to decentralize by creating a DAO. And then you have kind of this ecosystem of anyone can actually contribute and make proposals to the DAO and then, you know, get remunerated for that based on the treasury. Hmm. So, yeah. yeah. yeah I, two really interesting things here in my mind. One is like, where does value accrue actually in the ecosystem? I think you, I think this is part of that conversation. The second is retroactive funding. So the way I understand retroactive funding is, um, or like the core principle behind the concept of ret retroactive funding is it's easier to agree on what was useful and has been useful than what will be useful, right? So like the, the idea of vent, venture capital funding is uh, you, you make these big bets on what you think will be useful. Most of them fail. One or two of them is successful. And like the current grants program kind of follows that same model. You throw a bunch of money at different things uh, and, and a couple of those will have these like outsized returns. Retroactive funding looks at what was successful in the past and what made the biggest impact. And then you allocate capital to them. Is that is that right? Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I know that's fairly accurate. the The issue, of course, is anyone might be wondering, well, how did they even pay for it in the first place? You know I mean, right? How did Ave Company have the funds to spend, as they say, sixteen million? And the answer to that is, well, they've raised, they've sold some of their treasury to fund this ongoing development, right? Because uh, Ave Company ha has some funds in their treasury, whether it's stable coins or Ave tokens, so they use that to fund. The project, and then they say, "Well, reimburse me for that." Um, the the issue that I I think there's two 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 issues here. One is there is seems to be some confusion around the relationship between the Ave protocol and Ave company. Two different things, and this idea that the Ave company does not get a part of the protocol fee, <clears throat> you know, because the Ave protocol does accrue some value. To your point, but the Ave company is not getting that fund, and the same with Uniswap. The protocol is earning a fee per swap, but that doesn't go to Uniswap Labs, which is Hayden and Co. They're developing, you know, then future upgrades to the protocol. Um, and then the second idea is it is a bit difficult, I think, in this case, where there seems to be some concerns that um, M1A supply raises is it would have been nice to know kind of an initial scope of work. If you're going to do retroactive funding, I think it's great. It, it can work, but at least give some indication of a proposal. Hey, we're going to develop V4. So, okay, V3 is out. We're going to develop V4. We have some understanding. These are kind of the things we want to focus on. This is the core team. We kind of estimate this is the scope of work. We're going to probably spend 10 to 20 million based on what costs us to develop V3. We'll keep everyone posted. Um, have a self vote. Yes, no. 
And I think that at least you try to, and I think it will be increasingly important for DAOs and especially as it relates to funding to be very transparent in, in the intention of the particular service provider or contributor to the DAO and then having kind of ongoing monitoring of, of what is it that is being done? How are funds being used? Um, now, a cynical response to this might say, well, a company does not have any kind of requirement to be super transparent in how they've used funds. Because a skeptic might say, wait a minute, this 16 million? Well, how do I know what's actually being spent? Like, how are you going to disperse that? How do you know you're not jacking up prices? Like, there seems to be some concern around the lack of transparency. So it's a fine line. Like I don't not of the mind that like a service provider like Gauntlet or these guys should be total open book around how they are running their company. But at least you need it. It's a little bit of a trust and reputation mm-hmm. game here, which is you need to trust that Aave company has the best interest at heart for Aave the protocol because they have a lot of Aave tokens in their treasury. And Gauntlet in a similar manner gets paid in kind, not in stables, but also in kind, like in the Ave token. And so it's a matter of incentives and playing the long game and reputation game for any contributor to any time. Is Ave company essentially a consult, like a service provider consulting firm in this instance? I think that's what they're trying to move towards, right? In this decentral, in this transition to further decentralize what they're, the move, as I understand it, and Stani can come on and correct me, is Ave Company is trying to be just like Gauntlet and Sertora, and it's just a contributor to the DAO. It doesn't have control over the DAO, and ultimately it's up to Ave token holders to decide if they want to pay for the work that Ave Company is doing um, mm. on the Ave protocol. Uh, let me make an analogy here and you tell me if it's a good one or not. So mm-hmm. sales, Salesforce, one of the biggest you know, software platforms in the world, they have, a, they have a platform where people can build on top of the Salesforce platform, right? And they, there are hundreds, probably thousands of these businesses that are, you know, five, 10, sometimes hundreds of people inside of these companies. And they're basically service providers. They're basically consulting firms that do some dev work, some consulting work, help people migrate onto Salesforce, help people build on Salesforce. Um, this feels kind of like that, but if Salesforce had spun out a consulting firm and Salesforce was, and that consulting firm was like, there was like employee crossover. Uh, and I don't know, I feel like it kind of con- creates this like anti-competitive market um, where, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I'm curious. Is that yeah. a fair analogy? <laughs> no, I think it is. The, it would be as if like when you implement Salesforce in your organization, there's a lot of professional services and there's these companies like Accenture and PwC and consultants that like do that uh, and they get paid. In this case, like I think your point's a really good one, which is, well, who really has an incentive to compete against the Ave company <laughs> to develop V4? Uh, Ave the answer is obviously going to win that. Yeah. Yeah, probably. Um but, you know, these are early organi- young organizations. So I think you need to look at also what's going on in Uniswap land. They just approved this company of sorts, LLC, actually, that is going to receive a fairly sizable chunk of money to then promote and sponsor and give funds, kind of like a venture fund, corporate venture fund plus grants to support the develop- ongoing development of the key here, Uniswap protocol. Uh, not Uniswap Labs. And so it's a different entity. And I think these, all these different protocols are trying to spin up these kind of credibly neutral DAOs that uh, will then administer some of the treasury to fund the development, mm. uh, kind of like a corporate venture arm, if you will. It's interesting. I feel like it's a, yeah, it's part of a, just a much bigger conversation about like, where does value accrue, right? Like if value isn't accruing, uh, you know, we had Jake, uh, this reminds me of the not Jake Trevinsky, Jake, uh, Jake from CoinFund, Jake Bruckman. I uh, would Jake, Jake on talking about public goods and like our protocols, public goods or common goods or private goods. And, uh, you know, if, if these protocols are public goods, well, it's like, well, then value doesn't accrue to public goods necessarily. So then it's, you have to find out, uh, figure out other ways to accrue value. One is by spitting off capital into the token, uh, back to token holders. But another way is by creating these type of like Aave companies, service providers on top of the protocol that, you know, that those, you can spit off. You can make hundreds of millions of dollars by winning almost like quote unquote consulting projects. So. Yeah. I mean, to be fair though, like Gauntlet has profited quite a lot from consulting and 
supporting Aave protocol by doing simulation testing on V2 and V3 and got paid in Aave tokens. Yeah. Like there's a lot of value. Yeah, Gauntlet's a billion dollar service provider. There you go. Yeah. So, so like I would put that in, in as a data point to say, hmm, there's a lot, there's value that is being accrued um, in this ecosystem that is not just going to the Aave company. Now, if you were to ask me, I think to me, it feels like this retroactive funding is an interesting experiment, but I would almost favor a model where, and this is maybe like Uniswap is doing it, where maybe you just set aside a specific percentage of the protocol fees to certain buckets of critical core ongoing development of the protocol, similar to how companies allocate 5, 10, 20%, 15% of R&D as a percentage of revenue. And I think that ultimately is good because that's what you want to see, right? I don't want to necessarily be up to the whims of a vocal minority or vote from a DAO to ensure that, like, there's a lot of uncertainty with retroactive funding. Like, you just don't know. Like, there could be a governance attack. There could be just, I don't know, like, like I tend to find that developers can be really risk averse. And so it's uncertain. Like, if you're, obviously, companies are well capitalized, but maybe Gauntlet in its early stage or some, hey, you're a great developer in, I don't know, somewhere, and you want to contribute to the DAO. From a competitive standpoint, it's really hard because you don't have any resources unless you go out and raise venture funding. But if you're a venture capitalist, you're, gonna get, you're probably not going to give money to them. You'd rather just buy the Avi token, if you will. Right. And so from a competitive standpoint, I would almost want to see a specific percentage of, of protocol fees diverted towards a bucket, an independent organization that then determines and funds projects to go and build and do an RFP, an RFQ, whatever. Like there are ways to fund R and D, uh, similar to how Gitcoin is done, um, but just how professional like yeah. companies do it, and do a competitive process to invite developers to say, "Hey, if you're going to develop V four, Aave V four, how would you do it?" And you do right. a contest, and then and then like you know, that to me feels like a more sustainable way of funding protocol. Which which is actually how public goods are fun. Like a lot of public goods <laughs> are funded, right? If you look at um like big statues or you look at uh, something like, like let's take Central Park, mm -hmm. for example, in Manhattan. Uh, the Olm Olmstead didn't win that project. Didn't It wasn't just like they went to Olmstead and said, hey, go build Central Park. They right. said, hey, we, we, we want to build a big park. Anyone can submit a proposal. They got like dozens of proposals and, right. and Olmstead yeah. won, that, won that proposal, right? Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's pretty good precedent on, on the Aave side and Uniswap side of proposals. Yeah. For, I mean, Gauntlet, for instance, and other Sertora and other service providers where if it's a big fee, a couple million bucks of, of service fee, then yeah, it's up, it's up for a proposal and the community can comment and ask for more questions and inf request information. And I think that to me feels like pretty good, let's call it DAO governance. Yeah. Let's move on. Um, mm -hmm. On Wednesday, Coinbase announced their new ERC-20 ETH staking derivative dubbed CBETH. Similar to STETH, staked ETH, Lido's staked ETH product. Um, obviously, this makes Coinbase a major player in the staking wars. I think whenever you have a company as big as Coinbase coming in to a new product, they're inherently a major competitor. Uh, curious to get your thoughts on this one. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I see it as quite positive. Um, there's been concerns around concentration of Lido having like up to a third of all <clears throat> kind of deposits. And so this just increases the competition. I mean, you have to assume we talked about in a prior episode of Coinbase um, and their role in staking and growing different business lines. It's healthy, ultimately net healthy for the space. If you have a centralized entity where a lot of institutions are going to stake or, or would want to stake and them having the possibility to stake and then having this derivative product where they can, you know, that facilitates kind of uh, withdrawing and having liquidity on the staked ETH. So, Ultimately, I think it's quite positive. Um, and this goes back to Coinbase early um, acquisition a year or two ago around Bison Trails and providing like infrastructure, like infrastructure services for, uh, you know, staking and validation. And so I think this is quite positive because, because it just, you want to always, like, if they didn't support this, then institutions might be on the fence on the margin of not staking. And this, I think, moves us closer to a direction where it makes it, more convincing for an institution to stake because it provides that liquidity that they might need if um, when they're staking. Period. Yeah. 
I think it's interesting. I mean, you have this conversation around Lido being like, so Lido, the conversation around Lido was this amazing product, right? But Steeth is a, uh, a little bit like monopolistic and they've just gained a massive market share very quickly. And, and, and there are arguments that it erodes uh, Ethereum's decentralization. That's the argument about Lido. Then the argument for uh, Coinbase's Steeth or uh, I guess CBETH is that it's highly centralized. Then you've got, um, like Rocket Pools are ETH, which I which you can't even really use in the US, I'm pretty sure. Um I don't know, just I, I just think there I think there's so much more room to grow in the liquid staking derivative space. I think there's uh I think the market is not one yet, I would argue. No, absolutely not. Um and I'm gonna send you a chart we should post here on on the forums. But uh yeah, you'll see at the concentration of um of where the deposits are and ultimately um, having another player in there is healthy for decentralization purposes. Which chart? I mean, my, I got it pulled up. Right uh, here. If you look at the ETH2 depositors, um, you have, if you scroll all the way down, okay. there's like a pie chart that shows kind of the distribution of ETH staked and Lido obviously being. Which one? Um, Which one of these? Keep going down. Keep down. You're going to see, no, it's a bit up actually. Keep going up. Oh, Lido. Oh, I see. Lido, yeah. Kraken, so, Staked, Stakefish, Binance, Bitcoin, Suisse, Figment, Celsius, Abyss. Mm -hmm. Yep, I see this. Okay. So this is a chart that uh, I think is one of the more important ones. This this dashboard, by the way, this Dune dashboard is fantastic on the on the merge. Uh, some really cool stuff. So this is where I'd be monitoring kind of the concentration of deposits. Um, uh, ETH2 deposits. Mm. And so the more diversity you have there, the better in my Yeah, this is really interesting. Hmm. Okay. We'll uh, we'll throw this one in the show notes. I think it's um it's really on the community the 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 success of um I'm curious to see whether or not CBETH will be integrated into a bunch of different DeFi protocols in the way that Steeth pretty quickly got integrated. Yeah, um I would I'd probably say no. You don't because think it should the, be, or you don't think it will be? Uh, I guess both. Yeah. Uh, well, well, you could argue that it's like similar to USDC, right? USDC technically is seized and censored, uh, but it's it's a really important stablecoin in DeFi, for better or for worse. Um, some people might disagree, and so in a similar manner, I think I think Coinbase might want to implement it. Uh, I would probably think it will, uh, but. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm unclear about this one. Yeah. I don't know if you have an opinion. Uh, I mean, all right. So what, like, how does a liquid staking derivative accrue value, right? They accrue network effects from market cap, right? Which is like a, a factor of popularity and trust. Liquidity, aka like being able to exit at, at par. And then also, I think it really comes down to DeFi integrations, right? Like stacking the DeFi yield on top of on top of the staking yield. I think the question becomes for the ETH community, especially around what's happening with Tornado Cash and stuff like that, is like, do DeFi protocols want to endorse and integrate into into DeFi and like recommend to the mass market this like quote unquote centralized staking derivative? If you have a lot of liquidity behind it, which is likely going to be the case given the amount of assets that Coinbase custody has, um, then it could be interesting for a few market participants yeah. looking for yield, right? Ultimately, this is like factoring. Like it's like there's a duration game that you want to use as derivative because if you're staking, then you're you're putting your ETH and committing to keeping it a certain amount of time. And some participant might not want to do that, might want to capture the yield, but might want the liquidity if they have. So ultimately, you want to be using a solution that has deep pools of liquidity. Lido yeah. has them, but you know, depends on the yield. And I think they're uh, more often than not. I have, I am of the opinion that a market and a free flowing market, as crypto is, as Eric's kind of described in our podcast, is the solution because it's self ordering. Right. And so if there's liquidity and yield, like people are gonna there's gonna be uptake. And so ultimately, yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, competition in any of these markets is a good thing, right? Competition to Lido is good. We now have like the trifecta of staked ETH derivatives. We've, we've invited maximum uh, market participation in. I think that's a good thing. I will say there were two things that weren't in the announcement that should be talked about, which is the fees and the taxes, right? The fees, 
uh, Coinbase is charging like I think it's twenty five percent on user staking revenue, uh, which is yeah, highest in the industry. Obviously, ultimately that comes down over time, uh, and I would assume that comes down decently quickly. Uh, and then on the tax side of things, I thought they had an interesting claim, which is that Coinbase claims that their derivative is a utility token that you wrap, and so when you wrap a staked ETH, that's not taxable. They argue, unlike minting or swapping into stake into Lido staked ETH, which is taxable. So they're trying to, I think, mm-hmm. play this that's like a good tax point, game. actually. It's like wrap Bitcoin, although yeah, I'm not sure wrap wrapping your Bitcoin like with uh, Bitco's like solution like uh, Nexo Bitcoin I guess is a consortium. If that's a right, it's like wrapping something is not taxable, but minting and right. swapping minting and swapping is taxable. So like I think, I think that's they're, correct. What they're going for here is like okay, the smart money that want and the institutional capital that like is probably more focused on their taxes than the retail mm-hmm. side of things. This is the you know the 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 safe staked asset for them yeah right the same yeah that's a that's a great that's a fantastic point actually yeah so uh it's it's rare that i make fantastic points but sometimes i get them in there no (laughs) i do most of the talking here but you know i I think uh, i'm just gonna maybe we shouldn't for the world i I know you have a big big night ahead of you my friend so i I know we don't have too much longer here i want to make sure that we talk about um Mm uh i want to i'm curious do you want to talk about Faye and rari yeah let's talk about that because i think it's been yeah, let's talk about that. Okay. Um, I will try to give a little background. I haven't been paying as much attention to it, but I think it's important. So um, last Friday, Fay Labs announced their plans to stop participating in the Tribe DAO with a proposal to dissolve the protocol due to like technical and financial and, and regulatory risks. Um, if, you, if, you, if you look back to Tribe, uh, the Tribe DAO, like six months ago, it was worth half a billion. Uh, six months later, today, it's closing shop, right? Uh, a surprise... Um, I think it is a surprise to some people, so not a surprise to others, but that's uh, Sam Kazamain. I forgot, I, I always botched the like, mm-hmm. pronunciation of his last name. The founder of Frax called the proposal outright outright fraud. Um, and so I'm curious to get your take, like if you fall out more with Sam, if you think the proposal is good, I'm, I'm curious to get your takes on it. Well, I, I, what I'm, I've been following it. Because it has yeah. impacted a few of my portfolio companies. Full disclosure: I was an investor in Faye, which, you know, is uh, operates as Tribe and then merged. I'm also an investor in Frax, and uh, I I'm also an investor in another company that suffered meaningful losses because of the Fuse hack. And so they've been on the other side trying to get funds recovered. Um, it is a. I'm just going to call it as I see it. I think it has been a pretty embarrassing situation for what governance should be and and what it all means for token holders because my understanding is that there was an initial proposal to um to pay back um and reimburse the affected users as part of the hack and then somehow that vote got invalidated uh, like crickets it, pa- it passed to reimburse the affected folks like you see in other instances. And then that vote somehow got invalidated by the core team. So no, 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 we're gonna vote again for no good reason that I can think of. And then then it didn't pass. Um, and so it's been this like decentralization theater of like what governance really means. Like you pass something that is, and, and then you don't honor it, then what's the whole point of all this? And so now, you fast forward to now, which I think is the third instantiation of when you of trying to like get some funds to affected users, and it seems like there is the contention here is how they are distributing. So they've now, I guess, retracted and say we're going to pay back some of the the affected users, but in a very in a way that I can't seem to understand why they would do it, um, and so. Did, I mean, we're not talking about chump change here. This this was an eighty million dollar hack. Uh, tribe holders have voted time and time again to overwhelmingly reimburse victims because they have the funds to do it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the the idea that the decision was a month later reversed, um, and then we go back and say no, no, we're actually going to do it. I mean, it's total loss of confidence in in the team and the maturity of them. You know, I know them personally. I think they're good people. 
But somehow I don't understand the rationale of delaying and not honoring both the community. And more importantly, like if you're a founder out there and you have the ability to pay back effective users and restore reputation of, of, of you as a developer, as a team, but also with protocol, because you always place consumers first. It is important. There, there's a lot of risk here in any DeFi protocol. But when this happens, and importantly, you have the ability to do so, like, why wouldn't you? Because, because then I think it gives you a fair shot of continuing to build and for this protocol to persist and actually build confidence and restore confidence. Yeah. And I'll, the last one I'll make is <clears throat> it, it is unrealistic to assume that you will never have a security breach or a fault. I think the operating assumption for a founder should always be things can go wrong. Let's try to make sure that we built in sufficient protections, insurance funds to make sure that if things go wrong, we always will put the consumer first. It's like, this is like the operating mantra of why I think U.S. businesses are great like Amazon. The consumer is always right. Right. It, <laughs> so just embrace that. And so I don't know what the situation will be or how the payout will actually happen, but uh, that's what I'm paying attention to because I hope that they... I hope that they understand and just do it in a way that is what most sensical, which is just pay out pro rata. If you're going to pay out 80 cents right. on a dollar, just equal to everyone. Equal. Like Instead of saying, okay, we're only going to do 2% of Fraxis, 13 million, 3% of Olympic Dow, 20% I can't, balance. I'm yeah. struggling to explain it because I don't understand the rationale and it's just yeah. like confusing. Well, so anyway. you, you want to know my first thought here was... Yeah. um. You know, I remember being at the Solana conference and I was at uh, in Lisbon, November 2021. And it was like Pico top, right? Like time the top by like a week. And I was at this party and, you know, everyone was talking about like the young founders, like the you know 19 year olds and 20 year olds building on Solana and things like that. And uh, I will say some some of the folks who have built Faye and Rari kept getting brought up. It's these like, you know, gigabrain folks. Uh, and I will just say, I don't want to talk poorly about anyone, but like, this is what happens sometimes. If you look at who's running Faye and Rari and Tribe, it is some, some of the team is still, they're still in college. Right. And so I'm like, this, is this a byproduct of having a space that gives a hundred million dollars and $500 million to 19 year olds? Like this should maybe be expected. I, by the way, I think it's amazing having uh permissionless world where you can, where, where 19 year olds who are, who are still in college can, can build these things. But like when, when capital gets involved and this much capital gets involved and you have 19 year olds making these decisions. All right, folks, this episode is brought to you by our friends at Avalanche and Ava Labs. They have just dropped a new crypto wallet called Core. You're going to be hearing a lot about it over the coming months. You can now be one of the first to try it out. Here's the reason I'm excited to partner with them on Empire. Right now, crypto wallets and browser extensions, they feel clunky, they feel non-intuitive. That's why Ava Labs built Core. It's a free, non-custodial browser extension that gives Avalanche users a seamless and secure Web3 experience across the entire Avalanche ecosystem. Here are a few reasons to try Core. Here's what I'm experimenting with. Number one, Core has intuitive dashboards with a unified display for all of your NFT collections, all your crypto assets. You can execute asset swaps directly inside the wallet. It's a really nice experience. Uh, maybe you want to earn yield or borrow against your Bitcoin, uh, but you don't want to do it on one of those C5 platforms right now. Core's native bridging functionality makes it really easy to bridge your Bitcoin to Avalanche's robust DeFi ecosystem. Last but not least, Core makes on-ramping super easy. You can convert dollars to crypto right now using the MoonPay integration. Just takes a few clicks. Download Core today using the link in the show notes. It's really, really nice. Uh, if you are interested in the Avalanche ecosystem at all, you have to be using Core. Download Core using the link below. Now, let's get back to the show. I think age is a really bad construct of intelligence and ability to build, but I think the maturity... Again, this is not a good precedent for folks that have been critical what's his name uh i'm blanking on he's constantly critical of like yeah and he actually attacked uh, the fate who the, the tribe uh the the rari team um i forget what his name is he's like an outspoken twitter personality and he attacked like the the crypto person yeah he's, he, he's on twitter right. um but like this again you're giving him 
all the reasons to continue to attack and, and be like, yeah, these kids should never be managing this money. Regardless, these are well-funded teams, A16Z, other funds have invested in Fay. I'm wondering where they are to drill good sense into, this is what a, a good investor does, is like you're ultimately there to provide support and sense as a board member or as a investor. Like, um, so I'm saying it now, I mean, I think I can't seem to understand why Faye would pay, again, 2% to Frax of the 13 million lost, 3% to Olympus Dow of yeah. the 8.9 million lost, 19 and 27% to Balancer and Vesperfly. <laughs> I can't seem to come to sense of why that is. Um, and it's not a good precedent. Um, right. I think. So, I mean, Sam said, they said this is one of the most egregious DAO and DeFi situations I've ever seen. There's yeah. quote, I mean, unquote, look, DeFi drama stuff, but this is a new low for DeFi. Yeah, absolutely. And so, look, I this is my take on the surface. I haven't spoken with the Faye team, so I'm putting out an, an invitation. If they want to come on the pod to talk about this rationale, they're welcome to do so. I haven't followed the governance forms in, in, to the depth that I feel comfortable being absolute here. If they want to come on and explain their rationale. By all means, Joey um, or whoever's listening from the Faye team, come on yeah. and explain it to us because I, I can't yeah. seem to understand it. Yeah. I also think there's a bigger conversation here about not just Faye and Rari and Tribe and things like that, but uh, our newsletter writer, Byron, uh, had a good good paragraph. He said, if you're a depositor to a DeFi protocol, you have no rights. You have no real rights as a creditor, right? Beyond what is hard coded into the smart contract. If you own a token that's issued by a protocol, you have no legal claim on the protocol's assets, no court to appeal to. There's really only this like social contract that exists right now. Yeah, um, I definitely agree. Again, it is a yeah. totally agree there. Uh, I think this is an interesting point. This is probably the number one point when people talk about reimbursing when there's a, a hack and loss of funds. Yeah. Because you don't, you, you don't want to perhaps set the precedent that their creditors are going to treat them like that. Um, but if you look at historically, most protocols and protocols that I think continue to endure the test of time are ones where they come up with some sort of solution to make users partially whole, like meaningfully whole or, or fully whole um, on their lost funds because ultimately that restores confidence and continuity in the protocol. Yeah. Uh, I, like, I think it brings up like, an interesting question of like, are liquidity providers of a protocol the creditors or like is a protocol's token token equity and debt and like, is it is it some type of mezzanine type instrument or is it something that doesn't even exist yeah. yet? And maybe the deeper rabbit hole is like, uh, this is a reminder of just how DeFi projects don't have a court to settle disputes and like bad debts, which then makes you think about mm -hmm. is like Dow to Dow and like real world assets uh, at mm -hmm. scale. Is that even possible before yeah. we have this, right? Uh, this isn't going to be the last incident. Yeah, absolutely. I think the things that are important to understand is who controls governance. And a lot of times the users of the protocol are earning the governance token, but it never comes to a point where they earn enough because given the inflation schedule, and it's most of the time either investors and or team that have a pretty controlling stake and say in governance in the early days. Think about Uniswap, like, you know, most investors and team, if they, and a lot of times the team likes not to vote for obvious reasons and delegates their vote to someone else, like student organizations or, you know, folks like Monet Supply or, you know, whoever, like people that are smart, I guess, Hasu or whatever. Um, yeah. so it is, uh, it is interesting. Um, but you're most certainly right. I mean, I, if, if you're a DeFi user, you shouldn't expect to be treated like a creditor, uh, and have no right in anything other than perhaps governance. If you're earning governance token or want to buy the governance token to influence uh, an outcome in this case. Yep. Yeah. Santi, I would usually keep going. We can keep going for another 20 minutes if you want. Oh, I thought you had a big night ahead of you. I'm prioritizing this over other stuff <laughs> because I, I missed to... because I missed I missed uh, last week. So so yeah. I, I'm trying to make coal here, folks. All right, good good. Um, one of our analysts, uh, Blockworks Research analyst. By the way, Blockworks Research. If you guys haven't read it yet, very very good. Uh, I was just gonna say like Byron's newsletter is the only newsletter other than like I, I read his consistently. It is dense, but it is packed with just the relevant stuff. So it's really good. Shout out to Byron. It's great. We should have a big shout out to Byron. Yeah. 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 Byron's a legend. Um, research 
Uh, Blockworks Research is amazing. Uh, we've had like some big alpha pieces recently, but we have one of our analysts, Westy. He put out a tw- uh, tweet thread on Tuesday claiming that the FAT protocol thesis is dead. The FAT app thesis is here to stay. By way of background, obviously, I'm sure you remember this. The FAT protocol thesis coined by Joel Monegro in 2016 highlights what he believed to be the big difference in value accrual between the internet and crypto applications, right? So if you look at, uh, if you look at, how the web developed, you have like these protocols and then apps built on top and the value. So like a protocol could be SMTP or HTTP, the value accrued to Gmail and and Microsoft Outlook, the apps built on top of SMTP. It didn't accrue to SMTP. His thesis was that the value in crypto accrues to the protocols, not to the apps. So far, this thesis has kind of actually held true a little bit, though there's been a lot of pushback. But with, you know, if you look at a lot of the L1 tokens, those have accrued a majority of crypto's value, kind of trading like an index token of, of each ecosystem. Uh, what Westy claims is that this paradigm is, is changing as apps mature, investors begin to prioritize cash flow. This is what Kane at Synthetics has been talking a lot about too, where, you know, the next bull run will be kicked off or the main metric in the next bull run will be fees that these protocols generate. I'm curious just like how you're setting up your how you're thinking about this from an investment thesis lens, fat protocol thesis, fat app thesis, somewhere in the middle. What, what do you think about this? It's a fantastic question. Probably one of the more important ones if you're investing in the space. And we talked about it, I think to some extent um, during the podcast with um, uh, the coin, coin fund, Jake, Jake. Jake. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and I don't, the answer is, I don't know, but I like most things think probabilistically, historically, I, skewed more towards investing in lower level parts of the stack, meaning things like Ethereum. In the episode with Kyle Samani from Multicoin, I think he brought up an interesting point, which I generally ascribe to, which is if you think a lot of the value that's being created, for instance, in DeFi is when you're swapping or when you're doing a transaction is MEV, minor extractable value. And most of that is going to the base layer. Um, and so like miners get bribed or tipped, especially after EIP 1559. And so <clears throat> the idea is, well, that benefits you as an Ethereum holder. Like the best way, I guess the best way to play MEV, if you're not really sophisticated and technical to run like a, a bot, if you will, like flashbots is to probably just own the base layer token and returns of, for the most part, like contribute to this idea. Uh, like owning the base layer, like the Solana, AVAX, you know, Cosmos, like Atoms, uh, and, and Ethereum. Um, obviously, for someone out there listening, might say, well, look at DeFi tokens. They've totally been crushed. Like DeFi has been in this bear market long before Bitcoin ETH took a, took a hit. And you were coming off of like a pretty high, which was DeFi summer. Um, I guess like looking forward, or forward looking, like I do think that Part of the reason why I haven't invested in something like a wallet, like Dharma, for instance, a rainbow wallet is because I think that for Argent, because I've struggled to one, see meaningful users um, and, and how they kind of, it's more of like, I felt that this industry for a long time has been just pure infrastructure build out. uh, And we haven't really hit any mainstream kind of application. But of course, that changes with gaming because, as I've said before, I think something like Axie is a hybrid and a mix of everything. It's kind of vertically integrated because it has Ronin, their chain. It also is, for all intents and purposes, Sky Mavis. Like, it has a front-facing application where people come, play the game, and then they do other stuff. They have a marketplace. They have Ronin, the chain. And so they're capturing value on different parts of the stack. And that's ultimately like the golden, I guess, the the like the golden goose is finding something like that, like step in, for instance, where it started off with a front facing application. People want to walk and they earn NFTs. And, but now they become the most popular decks in Solana because they have the users and they're built, you know what I mean? And so they are building out other products and integrating with other things in the ecosystem. Then it's easy with composability. And so long winded answer of saying, I think, not because I haven't invested in front-facing applications doesn't mean that they're not going to accrue value. I think increasingly you're going to find things like games that become like the everything app, like a WeChat. Um, that's my thesis of why I'm so interested in games, because I think they're huge funnels. They take us closer to mainstream adoption. And then they are probably, because it is an attention game, 
they are the ones that are in a privileged position to ex- extract is probably a negative word, but to capture value, capture value from yeah. users by offering all these yeah. different services. Um, and so I'm excited about perhaps investing more on the top of the stack. Now, of course, you could also say, wait a minute, you could just invest in FTX, Binance, and Coinbase, and you would have made a killing if you did like the early stages of that. And look, exchanges are highly profitable businesses. They're not decentralized, right? right. They're like yeah. a different category in their own kind of right. But I'm curious how you think about it. By the way, uh, just on, I was actually going to tell you about this this gaming breakfast that I had. I had a huh. breakfast with um, an ex-executive, at, uh, an ex-Facebook executive who's now CEO of a crypto gaming company. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll, I'll have to connect you with him. It was really interesting breakfast. So to me, everything I, I don't pay attention to gaming space too much. I know that's you're super deep into it. I'm just not, I'm not like a huge gamer. I'm like very deep into the weeds of a lot of what's happening in DeFi right now. To me, DeFi is booming right now. To me, DeFi, like the innovation I'm seeing, it, it, it almost feels like six months before we had DeFi summer. Like I'm getting really, really, really excited about DeFi again. Mm-hmm. Um, this guy, he's like, oh yeah, DeFi is dead right now. Gaming, like gaming is the hottest place in crypto. I'm like, gaming? Like gaming's dead right now. He's like, he's like, oh no. He's like, you are so missing this. He's like, there's an absolute, he's like the most interesting thing in crypto right now is the battle that's going on between Polygon and Immutable uh, to win the gaming companies that are leaving Solana and are have been forced to leave Terra, mm. right? So you had all these games that were built on Solana and Terra. They've left. They're either going to Polygon or Immutable. There's an all-out war. And then you've got like Avalanche and Nier kind of in the background, like winning some of these, but really it's kind of Polygon mm-hmm. and Immutable. Mm-hmm. So that was just fascinating. Like I didn't yeah. I didn't know that there's this all-out battle going on right Absolutely. now. Absolutely, yeah. I think it's... Uh... Look, I don't have a strong view. I, I allocate in different plays. I am of the thesis that I continue to believe that there's going to be one game that is a killer game uh, and a parody with a Web2 game that is fun to play. Go listen to the podcast with Brooks from Noor. And he talks about this in, in a very clear and cogent way, yeah. which is a game. There will be a game in Web3 that is going to be equally as fun to play as a Web2 game. Super addicting with all the nice benefits of Web2 NFTs being, you know, having the ability to own a token and, and the property in the game and the, and the XRP that's being created, not Ripple, but like the experience and leveling up. And then being able to translate that and use that across an ecosystem, a very highly composable, integrated system that touches so many different other types of things like playing other games and, you know, earning yield and using DeFi. And I think ultimately a game like that is gonna crack that nut and build a whole suite of products to give that user no reason to leave their app. Yeah. And I think, look, uh, in many ways, you Web3 is really exciting because it enables, I think, really unique business models, many of which we haven't really seen and started to understand. Um, but I think what is probably clear is that user behavior may not change that much or just on the margin because users like really value convenience. Um, and, and, and even though you have less like barriers of, to entry and perhaps stickiness, like of consumers, right? It's super easy to switch from uh, Solana to Ethereum by bridging, watch out with the bridges, but it's easy, right? It's easier. Like the mo you switching from Bank of America to Wells Fargo is a royal pain in the ass. You switching from Aave to Compound, like, uh, no, it's just a click of a button. And so. Yeah. That being said, I think users always stick around. And I think there is still the moats are, you know, protocols that are safe, secure and easy to use and have Lindy built in and baked in and have liquidity and all that. It's a flywheel Um, because I think it's a hard question. And my final thought on this is it's a really hard question because there are like 10 users on DeFi and like, you know, couple thousand, hundred thousand gaming, that's nothing. So we're all beta testers. And so it's really difficult because yeah. you, I think have to invest with the idea of next cycle, you will probably reach a couple hundred million users and you have to build towards that and assume that that's going to be the case and invert and then say, okay, well, is a wallet like Argent going to take 1% fee out of all the activity that happens across NFT swaps, DeFi swaps, any token swap and any type of activity? Well, that's huge, massive. Um, and so, but yeah, 
given the whole context of historically, it's been really, really, really hard to outperform ETH in the long run. Extremely hard. Yeah. Well, that's because, I mean, yeah, ETH, ETH is, right? If, if it, hmm. The FAT application thesis, it's like money is the largest application in the world. So it... I well, mean, the, the, ETH, that's why ETH is so exciting. ETH built the FAT protocol thesis and the FAT application well, thesis. Well, in some capacity, yeah. Like, so uh, I was driving the other day, and we were uh, stuck in traffic, and there was like these toll booths operators. And a friend of mine was next to me and said, "God, it'd be so nice to own these like toll booths." I'm like, "That's kind of Ethereum. Imagine like owning a toll booth, a highway. Is you're constrained by geography and physical, like you know, deploying these roads, but." Not very scalable, capital intensive. But now I think owning ETH, and none of this is legal financial advice. So anyways, I'll say it because I have to say it in every episode. <laughs> uh, ETH to me is having an ownership into the rails of the internet, like Web3. And it's a, it's a very generalized bet on this idea that people are going to come and build stuff. And the number of cars flowing through that highway is going to go from five today to five billion in five to years. And you're going to collect the fee. Every time yep. there's any type of activity going on in the network and you don't have to place a bet on what that activity is going to be. You don't have to think about electric cars or not electric cars or the brand of the car as the analogy. All you have to say is this is where most people are going to come and visit and traffic through these rails because because they are just way better. And it's like a nicely paved road. And the analogy is Web2 is a dirt road. And you'd much rather go on the nicely, newly paved road because it's faster, it's better, and cheaper. And so owning ETH or some of the L1s is like that. So you could argue that, I don't know, I may be totally wrong. I invest across all layers of the stock, but on a ratio basis, sometimes like I would say I've been morally heavily skewed towards bottom parts of the stack that I think yeah. are that infrastructure. Let me ask you this. When you hold ETH, do you hold Steeth or just ETH? Like, are you are you allocating to liquid staking derivatives? Both. Yeah. Both. Both. Yeah. And why yeah. not just why not put it all in? Yeah. Why not put it all in liquid staking and just earn earn four percent? Um, just for yeah. diversification reasons, liquidity, duration, like all these different variables. Since you construct a portfolio, um, sometimes I borrow against my ETH. Yeah. Um, and use it to do other stuff. Um, and so again, while these staked ETH derivatives are composable, they're not as perfectly composable as ETH itself. And so, you know, you never want to allocate the like one thing. Fair enough. Yeah. I will leave you, uh, I will leave you with this one question and then we can call it, call it a night, which is yes. what do you think is the biggest missing piece of crypto right now across the entire ecosystem, across the industry. You're seeing all these new angel deals. I know you're really active right now. Like what is the one mm. thing that you just still mm. feel like is missing? Um, maybe it's just really fresh in my mind because we just recorded it, but I think regulatory clarity, I think is, is super important right now because every conversation that I have with, um, you know, institutions and, and pretty much everyone out there is like, they're on the fence, they're on the margin. I think that what's really exciting is most people now truly kind of believe that this is where the puck is going. This is where the internet is evolved. It's the next frontier of the internet. You want to capture it. It's super exciting. I think the narrative of like exploding existing institutions and replacing them is, is gone away. And it's more like <clears throat> even centralized institutions are seeing the benefit of interacting in this open permissionless ecosystem and networks, because they also stand a benefit. The missing piece is just the regulation. And so I think uh, I'm optimistic that hopefully we can reach some sort of uh, sensible, just clarity that allows us to then really kind of open the floodgates for a whole new wave of developers and institutions and liquidity that comes in and starts using these things. Because I think that then, really is the missing piece in the flywheel to increase the efficiencies of L2s, build all these different products. Um, and I could just sense because founders are nervous. They always have been, it's, it's a constant persistent thing. And so if you just remove, like, I'm not saying all of it, but if you at least like divert a third or 40, 50% of the energy that is thought and even resources that are being put 
to get some sort of like not really good legal strategy and you invest those in pure innovation and tech and business development. Like I think that, that, that attention and resources have a much, much bigger yield. Um, and so hopefully we can do that. Um, so it's really that. And the other one, I think uh, like if, if you weren't, if it's not regulation, I just think that, uh, I was just coming off of like a really good session, uh, last week with, uh, a potential, like someone that I really, uh, like he, he's super smart. He's like 64. He's built and managed and operated many different companies. He's been at the forefront of technology and innovation. And it's really exciting to see someone like that, like be so bullish on crypto. And we were just like having this discussion. It's like for the first time, like you have a con like a convergence of information is moving at the speed of light. Capital is now moving increasingly at the speed of light, untethered, unbounded by like historical restrictions, man-made historical artificial restrictions. And like everything is now happening in an open source context, which like if you didn't see web two and you didn't see how the smartphone is going to have such a huge impact in everything that you do, like think about it, like you're like 18 hours a day, you're touching this device that 10 years ago, people were saying it's going to go nowhere and it consumes and controls your life in sometimes good and bad ways. Most people didn't even imagine that. And that all kind of happened in like 10 years. Imagine now the pace by which new different use cases and business models is going to evolve and like my imagination doesn't stretch that far. This is why I'm not a builder. I'm not an investor. I just want to give money to people that are like way smarter and visionaries. But like, think about the pace of, and the acceleration of innovation and all the different kind of use cases that are going to evolve. It's, it's actually like incredibly exciting that we're living in this moment that I don't think we've ever, humans have never been on where the pace of innovation is just like vertical. All we need is <laughs> Santi, my card. friend, you Please. you keep me bullish. Please. You keep me bullish. <laughs> I can't look. Uh, I'm I'm a perennial bull. Sorry, folks. I have to be a bull in this episode. It's hard not to. I'm just inherently optimistic. Um, an optimist. You and me both. You and me both. Well, it's been great. Um, anyways, and I've been. I guess I'll. Well, before we go, I guess I'll flip the question to you. Like, from your perspective, what is it the thing that you think is kind of missing? That is going to take us to the next next level. Um, sorry, I'm wildly distracted. I'm sitting next to a hotel, and there's like some crazy stuff going on in this hotel room next to me. Um, <laughs> Jesus, people got close their blinds. Uh, I think that I think <laughs> I think some, I, I think uh, I'm looking right now in within DeFi. At, I think if you look in DeFi right now. Uh, all interest rates are variable um, and there's like not a fixed rate. There's not, there's no, there's no, the only way to basically raise capital right now in DeFi is through equity or, or, or in crypto is through like equity financing is through like what looks like venture. Um, but if you look at traditional capital mm -hmm. markets, debt plays a much bigger role than equity. Actually, we, we get so focused on equity because of venture, mm -hmm. but like debt is much, 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 much bigger than equity issuance to raise capital uh, in, in traditional markets. And I, I think the reason we haven't seen that yet in crypto is because everything is based on these variable rates. So if you look at traditional capital markets, fixed mm -hmm. rate lending makes up like 90% of lending and variable is like 10%. In crypto, it's all variable. So I yeah. think we need uh, a much bigger fixed rate lending market, which then relies on like underlying things like interest rate swaps markets um, and stuff like that. And you yeah. know, there are companies that do a great job of this, like Notional, shout out to Notional and uh, Notional like and Eddie over there. A few and, others, uh, yeah. To, 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 to be fair, to, yeah, we, we're, I was a seed investor there while I was at Parify. I think they're doing some really cool stuff. But to be fair, like you, you could technically, you could technically like create a, a product where like you deposit on Aave, you borrow fixed. You can borrow fixed. You can borrow, you can borrow like borrow right fixed. now on Aave, I was, I did a, I borrowed on Aave last night, actually. I think it was like one and a half percent or two and a half percent variable and then 10% fixed. Um, yeah, I guess it's the benefit. It's it's really the what you're saying is it exists. Yeah, it's like that's too big of a that's too big of a spread. Um, okay, and yeah. and it'll come down as you yeah. start introducing things like derivatives and interest rate swaps and things like that. So yeah. I'm excited for that. It's like pretty uh, maybe to most people pretty boring, but I think that unlocks this big like. No, but I think you're absolutely right. It's like yeah, you, you look at 
a lot of the ideas for good investments are you look at what's happening in traditional financial markets and say, hey, look, the derivatives market, the options market is like 10 times larger than the notional spot market. Why is it that that's not the case in DeFi? And you say, God, why haven't options and, and derivatives like really exploded? And it's yeah. because of like- Well, then I think, it, like, I think it's just a cool idea if you had fixed rate lending. Because then you could, like, let's say you're a DAO and you're spitting out, like, let's say Uniswap right. turns on the feet. Like, let's say you're a protocol, you're generating <clears> a bunch of revenue, then you could- programmatically lend or excuse me programmatically borrow against the revenue that you're spitting off and it just it just creates a really mm -hmm. exciting market where it's a hyper efficient debt market um yeah so yeah it'll happen it will happen to be discussed, to be discussed. cool all right my friend i give you a full hour i promise i'm at 40 so i'll give you so i'll give you a credit tonight uh, Santi, enjoy the rest of the night my friend and uh nice. thanks everyone for listening thank you so much